so welcome to the latest Leadership Lessons. I'm Stephen Leptak, editor of The Drum, and I am lucky enough to be joined by Michelle Paluzzo from IBM, who is the Chief Marketing Officer and has literally just got off a flight to come and join me here at one of The Drum's conferences in London. Uh, good morning, Michelle. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty well, actually. Ask me again in a few hours. Well, hopefully you make it through the, uh, this interview in one piece. Yes. I, I'm, I'm so grateful you, that you've done this, but um, the reason why I was so keen to talk to you is you, you command such a big marketing team internationally mm -hmm. and a sales team as well. Yeah. So I'd love to know, and what I hope to talk about is, exactly how do you go about that? So... <laughs> I'm sure you've been asked that many a time, yeah. but I'm, I'll be fascinated to to, to uh, learn exactly how you do that. So my first question for this podcast is always, what does the word leadership mean to you? That's a great question. Um, creating a culture where people can do their best work. Uh, creating an environment, a strategy, a mission, but most of all, a culture. So that you know, people do the best work possible. Mm. And how do you? I always wonder when it comes to leadership. Is that do you have to be strategic, or is it just something that you think you can do naturally? How how does leadership work in your I opinion? Think leadership, like like everything, is of course part of it is innate, but but a lot of it is learned. You know, I think the all the great leaders I know or have read about or you know have met. I, um, what you find in common is they're constantly reshaping their leadership skills and style based on their experiences, you know, and they're, it's a never ending journey, you know, it's this quest to figure out how to be better for people, better for your team, better for clients, um, better for your family, you know, so I think it's that desire to continue to grow and to be humble uh, about what you're doing well, but also all the many areas all of us can improve as leaders, so... I don't think you just arrive, you know, I don't think you're, it just, uh, it just happens. And I also think more often than not, it's the toughest things that shape leaders that really carve their mark in, you know, the soul of a leader, those difficult situations, those challenging times. Um, that's when you see leadership emerge. Mm -hmm. And from your own perspective then, do you think of yourself as a leader? Is that something you ever actually sit and consider? No. This <laughs> is like have a cup of coffee in the morning and talk about my own leadership. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, I think with, with two kids and a jam-packed life, there's not a lot of time for reflection. Um, I absolutely think a lot about how do I get better every day? You know, how do I show up um, better for my people, for for uh, that, that work with me and for me, um, you know, for the, uh, the charities in my life that, that mean something to me, my family, and that I think about a lot, you know, how, how could I have been better this week? What could I do differently next week? So in that sense, there's a lot of reflection, but not, not with the nomenclature of maybe you know, how am I as a leader today? <laughs> yeah, because uh, I do speak to some people who do think about themselves as a leader. Yeah. And I, I often wonder, I don't know if it's a, a, a healthy thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's probably a good thing to think about how you manage. Yeah. But I think the idea of actually considering yourself as a leader, maybe, I don't know, maybe it is a good thing. Yeah. But I, do, I, I, I get the impression that it's probably not. Yeah. Just. Yeah, I think that, that you know, that 
the time to reflect on how you get better. How are you better? How are you better next week? How are you better? What did you take from a situation? How would that um, reshape how you would show up the next day? I mean, that's really powerful and I think valuable. Um, and there's a lot of humility and grace in that, right? That you and, and confidence actually. Um, uh, but but I don't think it needs the the titling of leadership. <laughs> So, in terms of, so let's using the title of leaders. Mm-hmm. Are there any leaders in history or in you your own career? Do away with your entire podcast if we ban the leadership word. Here. That's great. We'll kill the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for being my last guest. <laughs> <laughs> are, are there are there any leaders then that you look to or uh, that you've learned from in your own career or maybe read about? Oh my gosh, all the time. I mean, I I, I consider myself a pretty uh, an avid learner, so I. I mean, I see leadership lessons all the time, and um, of course there are historical leaders that have really inspired me in biographies I've read and autobiographies I've read that um, particularly people, um, oftentimes women actually, but particularly people who faced really challenging situations and had the audacity and the humility to grow from that and to, um, so, so lots of leaders like that that were in, you know, um, incredibly challenging situations and emerged better, stronger, wiser, kinder, more generous. Um, but then I've worked with extraordinary leaders, Ginny Rometty, our CEO at IBM mm-hmm. and, and chairman. Um, I mean, that's such an honor and privilege to work for people like Ginny who have blazed the path for women, actually, for, for leaders, period. Um, but always brings, I think, such extraordinary grit to what she does, but also a lot of grace and humanity. Um, Manuel Medina Mora, who was the CEO of the Consumer Bank in City, was my boss. Um, uh, he, uh, he actually just passed away recently, but he was just an extraordinary leader and, and had, um, again, I think those same skills that I really tend to gravitate towards, admire, just incredible persistence and grit and a point of view um, and audacity about that, but, but but also like a lot of humanity and, and uh, humility and grace as mm. well. What would you say then you've learned from them in terms of anything that you've picked up that you, you've taken forward? Well, a lot. I mean, I think, um, and, and by the way, I also feel like I learn leadership lessons every day. People who work for me teach me about leadership. So, you know, you can be in situations in team meetings and, you know, you watch somebody um, emerge with new ideas, a new approach, a way to manage the situation. So I, I do think leadership lessons are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Even my children, you know, um, I have two little ones and I see things they do and, and ways they act that I'm inspired by. So, um, but I, I think, I think, you know, you, you, I think when you grow up, you sometimes have this almost fairy tale view uh, that people who have achieved a certain amount in life, that it's been this kind of gilded glide path, you know, and, and, and I think when you really get to see um, leaders you admire up close and personal, as I've had such a great opportunity to do, my dad, um, maybe chief amongst them, actually, um, you realize that, you know, those hardest things that every individual goes through, that every leader goes through, that every business goes through, that every nonprofit goes through, um, and you, the, the really insightful thing is watching how people persist mm-hmm. and find resilience and um, and learn and reshape and grow. And I mean that that's the 
that's what I think exposure to people like Ginny and Manuel, that up close and personal, you see that and, and you feel that and you experience that and that really, I think, mm-hmm. shapes, has certainly shaped me. You, you mentioned you'd learn from your father there. What, 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 um, what have you taken away from him? Yeah, lots, actually. Um, I wouldn't have said this when I was 13, of course, <laughs> but now and as an adult, I can. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur, and so I grew up in um, an environment where he had such passion about what he was building. And I think the things that really, really struck me, even as a child, um, uh, three things about him. One, he cared deeply about his clients. He was always just incredibly customer client-centric, and it was just through and through who he was. And he, he would do things that rational business people wouldn't do. Like he would be willing to work with certain clients without a contract um, uh, because he trusted them and he knew them. And he, you know, so uh, he had just such a abiding sense of client centricity. Secondly, he was, you know, team, team, team above all else. I mean, we were little kids and we would have to memorize the names of everybody who worked for him in case at the, you know, we saw them in town at the mall or something. And he, he just had such a passion for the people who worked for him and uh, for developing them. And and, um, and then lastly, he, he just is a relentlessly positive person. You know, he, he um, was really... You know, if God forbid we would criti- be critical at the dinner table, like be critical of a science teacher or, you know, a math teacher or a kid in our class. And he, he always had a way of just saying, look, it's very easy to criticize, you know. And so he had this ability to um, really always see the best in people, which mm-hmm. was very inspiring. So I, I said earlier on that I wanted to talk to you a bit about how do you lead such a big team internationally and yeah. I mean where would you even begin to be a leader of, of a, a, first of all a global team how, how do you how do you how do you manage to focus on that well I think um I think a few maybe tricks <laughs> right um one is I think it's really qu- critical to be clear about the priorities you're setting and the outcomes you're trying to drive and I am remarkably consistent about what we're trying to achieve mm-hmm. in marketing at IBM and, and in all my jobs. I think it's you can evolve the means, you can evolve the actions, you can keep setting the bar higher in terms of outcomes. But I do think when you're leading big, dispersed global teams, um, clarity of the mission you're on, clarity of the priorities, uh, clarity of your own style, mm-hmm. clarity of the outcomes you're trying to drive. That I think is very important because I think it gives people pretty clear guideposts in which to operate. Um, and if people, if you're moving the guideposts all the time, it's very hard for teams to know, uh, to have degrees of freedom in how they operate. Yeah. So, so I think that's very important. Um, secondly, I really believe in a lot of transparency. So I really believe in a lot of transparency about how are we doing? We said we were going to achieve these things. We said we, these were the outcomes we wanted to achieve. How are we doing? Let's be super transparent about that. Like what's working, what's not working? How do we get better? Um, I think some of that stems from my belief I grew up with Agile as a way of working because mm-hmm. I grew up kind of in the digital age. Mm-hmm. And so that um, constant notion of here's what we're trying to get done, here's what we did well, here's what we got to get better at, you know, here's how we can improve, that, that the humility that comes from kind of Agile and, and the cross-disciplinary nature of Agile teams is something I'm very passionate about. Um, third, I think that, you know, of course, it relies on having exceptional people. So if you spend... A, enough time and a lot of time on kind of mission and priorities and outcomes, mm-hmm. then the, the, really the only other big thing you have to spend your time on is do you have the right people? So 
Manuel Dinamora, the, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, he used to say, before you get, before you embark on any great trip, you know, and you get in the boat, you see, you know, the place you're sailing towards, uh, you just have to make sure you have the right people in the boat with you. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought about that because I think uh, that's, that's very important, you know, that you are constantly assessing both for yourself, but also for your, for your team, um, given what we have to achieve, given what we have to accomplish, um, uh, how am I making sure that I'm setting the priorities the right way, that I'm being sort of transparent about, you know, how we're doing and where we have to get better, um, and that, you know, the right people are in the right jobs mm. so that they can, you know, do their best work. And then the last thing is, I think you just obsess about getting obstacles out of people's way, you know, really having a pervasive sense that your job is, as I said earlier, to, to give people the the environments do their best work mm-hmm. um, means you also have to be really obsessive about how do you take obstacles out of people's way? How do you how do you free up human capacity for excellence? How do you know when you've got the right people on the team though? Yeah. Because hiring is half the battle, I think. Making sure that the people around you are there to support but also capable of doing that. How do you how do you recognize the right people? Well I think um, I really believe, you know, there's there's sort of the hard skills people have, and that that you can kind of assess, right? Are they are they good at digital marketing, or are they good at, you know, um, I don't know, creative or brand or data or analytics? Like, are they are they well suited for their job in terms of their skill set? And you can do a lot of training and continuing to grow in that. All of us have to. I think the harder part in assessing talent is, um, do they have the capacity and desire to constantly learn? Um, do they uh, do they have the humility to always want to get better? Um, are they audacious in how they set goals and clear with teams in terms of how they set priorities? Um, do they lift other people up? Mm-hmm. You know, do they make other people better? Mm-hmm. Are other people in the room better because they're there? So that's the harder stuff. But those are some of the I think more important criteria of leadership you yeah, have to look for. Right. Um, finally, I think marketing like anything but but maybe more so now than ever before is really a team sport and um you just can't have people who are you know uh who have a great desire to be on an island on their own Mm -hmm. you know i like to do my creative work i don't want to hear about whether the data you know says that's right or wrong i want to do my thing my way on that that that's a very hard mentality in marketing now Mm -hmm. one of the questions i always ask is how you put yourself, how how you charge with yourself of leading the diversity and inclusion agenda within yeah. your business. Yeah. What what have you implemented, and how do you see that progressing? Oh, now we're going to talk forever. So <laughs> we're about to okay. really get started here. The jet lag is wearing off, and I'm no. I, I mean, I uh, I also get to lead the women's uh, for IBM, so sort of the executive sponsor for women in IBM. So it's a topic I am incredibly passionate about. I think you start with the premise that more inclusive teams produce better results. And if you don't believe that, then probably the conversation you should probably stop listening to the podcast. (laughs) So, um, because I just think that's a fundamental truth that I think it's been proven over and over again. And I think it matters more than ever in an era of AI where if we don't have inclusive teams thinking about and building things like artificial intelligence, the results that we will ingrain in AI systems will not be results I think society can live with or, or want. Um, and there's so much research on that, simple things like 
the words programmer are now almost universally uh, seen as male only uh, by a lot of leading AI systems. So it becomes more and more important, I think, even in this era to think about inclusive teams. So if you believe the fundamental premise that it's a business imperative and priority that you will create more value, that you will grow revenue faster, be more profitable, um, and that you increasingly need to do it because the way technology is changing, then I think it becomes actually rather simple. Um, uh, one, you make it a business priority. So it's not a nice to have, it's not kind of sitting on the sideline, but you formally document it, as I said before, you know, one of the most important things about that any leader can do is be very clear about what the outcomes you're trying to drive and what the priorities are. So I think the first thing is you have to establish it as a business priority, a formal business priority. Um, a lot of good things happen when you do that. You know, when you set business priorities, you then measure, you set outcomes, you measure yourself against those, you have carrots, you have sticks, you invest, you you know, you, you sort of use data to understand where your where your issues are. So I think if you treat it uh, truly as I see it, as a prior, as a business priority, a fundamental business priority, not a look. It's nice to have all else equal, be great, but but a business priority. I think a lot of things line up. So, for instance, um, uh, you know, we at IBM and certainly I in marketing, we start to really understand data. Where do we have an issue? Where do we, do we have an issue with bringing women in or bringing people of color in? Do we have an issue that they're dropping off at certain levels? Do we have a do we have a promotion issue, a retention issue? A, um, uh, do we, you know, do we not do a good enough job of recruiting from the outside? So you really start to understand the magnitude, sort of the analytical aspects of inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, that allows you to do things like two and three year planning, um, which is really important in this topic because, um, you know, most technical teams, for instance, are 80 plus percent male. Um, C-suite jobs are 80 plus percent male. Board jobs are 80 plus percent male. If you want to get to gender parity, that's a many year horizon thing. And by the way. You start doing the math, like say you hire 100 people a year um, and you want to make any retrite, I don't know, say 60 people a year or something like that, mm -hmm. I don't know, make up the numbers. But you start looking at the math over three or four years, you're like, well, if I want to get to gender parity, I'm going to have to start significantly tilting my kind of hiring and or retention practices towards women. That makes you think very differently, or people of color, that makes you think very differently about where to recruit from, how to recruit. If you're just kind of one-off, oh, do I have a woman on the slate, or do I have a person of color on the slate? You're not really gonna get there. So you start looking at a multi-year horizon. What does the data tell you? What do you have to do differently? That will lead you to things like, oh, well, recruiting really has to be different. I have to change the, uh, the ways that I'm thinking about recruiting. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the universities that I'm showing up at or the, um, that will lead you to say, I have to change how I'm thinking about external hiring. You know, maybe the forums that I show up at, the places that I'm looking for external hires you know, outside of university, mm -hmm. that may make you to think very differently about bias and certain policies. We were looking at some policies recently at IBM um, and, and a lot of consulting firms where, uh, thankfully not at IBM anymore, but where women are, the, the big part of becoming partner is based on utilization. Mm -hmm. You go have a baby and you're dinged for utilization effectively for two years because it's the year and then the sort of yeah. subsequent year when you go on maternity leave. So that's ridiculous, you know? But if you, if you, if you make this a priority, you're going to start to figure those things out and you're going to start to say, we can, we can address that. We can make change happen. So I think it, you know, I think the good news is um, if it's a topic you care about, and by the way, it has to be a topic that men care about because mm -hmm. the vast majority of these senior positions are held by men. So if it's a topic that, that men by and large care about and they believe that it produces better business results, 
it really truly is as simple as creating, making a formal business priority, setting objectives, holding yourself to those objectives. Um, and, uh, and I think if you do, you can make more progress on this issue than almost any other business priority compared to, you know, launching new products in, a, in Asia or, you know, changing the way you distribute in North America or uh, reimagining your supply chain. I mean, these are, these are really hard things. Inclusion is really not that hard mm. if you set your mind to it. Um, I really want to continue to talk about that, yeah. but I've only got it for so long. Uh, I wanted to ask you, how can I not ask you about AI yeah, and yeah. your view of how can AI help leaders? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's such an interesting time for for all sort of emerging technology, but certainly for AI because, um, and you know, Ginny often says that artificial intelligence must augment human capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and not replace it. And that's a profound statement because it has a lot of implications in terms of how you think about developing AI and bringing AI mm. to fruition. I think that, um, I'll just, let me, let me start with marketing, but, but all of us are kind of overwhelmed by the amount of data coming at us, the amount of channels proliferating, et cetera. And what I've seen great companies do, and so, so what ends up happening is we have a lot of like, proof of concepts emerging on AI. A little thing here, a little thing there, doing a little bit here, doing a little bit there. What I've seen some really great companies do is take an entire workflow that matters and reimagine it, and then think about how data and AI can help transform that workflow. So for instance, um, customer service, let's just use customer service for a second. So uh, if you think about it, a typical customer service function, you imagine rows and rows of desks, individuals on with, with individual customers, and you're measuring things like average handle time and first call resolution, and all of these things we've grown up with for decades in the call center. So if you put AI into a call center, there's little bits you can do, but if you want to change that workflow, mm-hmm. and you said, first of all, how could we reimagine all the data points that are leading up to what might be a customer problem? Um, they're getting frustrated on the website, they're clicking refresh, they're searching for something. You know, so what are the things that are helping us imagine and anticipate proactively what problems might be? Um, secondly, when problems occur, how do we handle it? You can introduce things like AI chatbots, but that blows up the workflow because all of a sudden communication's asynchronous, right? So um, I can start a conversation with a chatbot and go put my kids to bed, you know, go to the gym, wake up in the morning, continue that conversation. So all the traditional ways of measuring first call, resolution, average handle time, etc., that those are moot. Um, equally, I don't have individual agents talking to individual customers. In a sort of reimagined call center, you have teams of 10 sitting together and they're monitoring maybe a thousand different chatbots. They're monitoring for sentiment analysis and they're pulling those chatbots that are going south, mm-hmm. you know, where the customer seems to be getting frustrated pulling them off the chatbot and then having people talk directly to the customer to resolve the issue. Um, they're retraining the algorithms. They're figuring out where did the chatbot answer things well, mm-hmm. where could it have improved. So the entire, you know, that means they're not sitting on the physical floor one at a time, you know, answering calls. So the entire workflow is reimagined. Um, the kinds of people, the way work gets done, the teaming required, the metrics you use, the incentive systems, I mean, the whole thing is different. So I think that's true in, in almost every place. Marketing is no exception. Mm. So um, 
The amount of data we have this year on our clients' customers is probably more than we had in the previous three years. The amount of data we have this year is more than the pre- you know. It just it's so explosive mm-hmm. that no marketer can actually keep up with everything. So we think hard about the marketer's workflow and where can AI jump in mm-hmm. and aid the marketer in her decision making. Um, where can AI point out? Places the marketer may not see that you know that her next best effort, her next best focus, her next best optimization would be on this part of the funnel or with these certain channels or in these markets and these geographies. Um, AI is also helping us reimagine how we learn about the customer, and know about the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, AI is helping us reimagine how we interact with the customer. Ads historically have been very traditional. I tell you, you should buy this, or you come search for something, and then I sort of haunt you around the web with that ad. Um, but with AI, we're finding, and we have something called Watson Ads, where you can interact with the ad. You know, you say, well, I really care about this kind of car, and I'm really, you know, these features matter to me, and this is, and, and you're interacting with the ad mm-hmm. as it's reshaping what car might be right for you based on what's important to you. Or, you may be saying, here's the stuff that's in my refrigerator, what you know, what kind of soup can I make? And you're having an interactive two-way kind of dialogue with yeah. an ad. Yeah. So it blows up the notion of how do you interact. And imagine, by the way, as a marketer, all that data you're getting back. Mm-hmm. We know what's in your refrigerator, Stephen. So uh, those, are, those are kind of things that are really interesting from, a, from a, the way AI will reshape marketing. But I think every major function is going through that reimagination process mm-hmm. um, what are the moments of truth uh, in that workflow um, and how could data and AI augment the capacity of human beings uh, if you for a doctor I mean, you think about a doctor right I mean, it's it's really a fundamental equation so what would be the one lesson that you know now that you wish you'd learned earlier in your career mm. Beside never to wear shoulder pads, you know, just never do that as a woman. Um, I, you know, I, I, I talked earlier about grit and grace, two words that mean a lot to me. And I think, you know, you, you start out in your career and you're so, um, you're sort of so eager for success and failure feels so hard. It feels, and, and with hindsight, you know, having experienced times when I've let myself down or haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve as a leader or haven't, um, uh, I, I guess I just view failure so much more through the context of the gift that it is, so mm-hmm. much more through the context of um, the ability to, to ride through something that doesn't go the way you want it to um, and to emerge uh, with humility, but but sort of better, stronger, wiser, more capable of being the leader you want to be. And I think I'll let you go with that. I think you've you've got enough on your plate today. But thank you. That was so fascinating to listen no, to. My pleasure to be here. You uh, never really imagine the hard moments and that you know now that you wish you'd learned earlier in your career? Oh, that's a good, tough one. Um, you know, I think that I, I talked a lot about that grit and grace. Um, and, you know, I think you're early in your career and you, and you, uh, you never really imagine the hard moments 